Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet water. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, we're continuing our series. It's a year-long time that we're looking to uh, be in the book of Psalms, and we are starting off with a series called Living Inside Out, Life in the Psalms, and we're using the Psalms to give us a window uh, into the spiritual practices that kind of mark the Christian life. And Whenever I talk about spiritual practice, I like to kind of engage people and ask, what exactly is a practice? So how would you define a practice? Uh, Think about maybe when you were growing up, when you were forced to practice something. So it might have been piano or violin, or you had to practice basketball or baseball or some sort of a sport, a dance. But think about what you were doing when you had to practice. When you're practicing, a practice is something that you do repetitively in a way that trains the muscle memory so that in the heat of the moment, you can respond without thinking. Isn't that what practice is? Practice is a small task that you do repetitively so that it trains your muscle memory so that in the heat of the moment, when the pressure's on, when the eyes are looking, when all kinds of challenges are facing you, in that moment you can respond instinctively. That's a practice. And so uh, athletes must practice so that in the heat of the moment, in the game, they can trust their instincts. Musicians must practice so that when they're on stage, in the heat of that performance, they can flow, enter the music, and express it uh, from who they are. That's what a practice is. Now, what is a spiritual practice then? Well, a spiritual practice is very similar. It's something that you do repetitively in order to train the muscle memory of your soul so that in the heat of the moment you can respond in the manner and with the mission of Jesus. Isn't it funny that none of us would even dare to imagine stepping on the Lincoln Center stage without practicing a piece and trying to perform some sort of a piano sonata? We would never dream of it. And yet somehow we think we can magically love our enemies when the pressure's on, when the heat has turned up. Somehow we think we can forgive those who have harmed us in an instant because we were upsurged in a moment of inspiration. How much harder is it to live the life of Jesus than it is to perform a sonata on a stage? That's what spiritual practices are. They're forming the muscle memory of our soul so in the heat of the moment, when the pressure's on, we can respond in the manner and with the mission of Jesus. 
Uh, last weekend I was out of town because our, in our family we uh, have a tradition where one of our kids turns 12, they get to plan a trip with a parent, and uh, they get a little bit of budget, they always blow way past the budget because it's easy to spend dad's money when it ain't your money. Uh, but Mikey and I went out of town, he turned 12 in January, and we decided to go back to the Twin Cities, which is where I grew up as a little kid. So it was a really great nostalgic trip for me, and he got to see some of my old haunts. But while we were there on the flight over, we decided that we were going to watch The Karate Kid together on the plane. First time ever watching it. And it was great. I mean, all kinds of feels for me growing up in the 80s. And his very first time, he loved it. Uh, but that's what that entire movie is about, isn't it? It's about the wax on and the wax off. It's about painting the fence so that you've trained that muscle memory in the heat of that tournament. Danny Russo can respond with his instincts. In a spiritual life, how much more is at stake? How much more ought we to pay attention to the practices that we keep? Now, you might be here and you might say, well, I'm not a Christian and I don't really know. Let me tell you this. You are being formed by the practices of our culture without even realizing it. The muscle memory of your soul is being shaped by something. And if you're not thinking about the practices that you keep, you are being molded by forces that you simply do not understand. You're being conformed in the pattern of something by someone somewhere. And it's not you who's deciding it. And so the, the spiritual life, the importance of practices... If you were here with us last week, we looked at the practice of prayer. Before that, we looked at the practice of living in the Word of God. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 23. And we're going to be looking at what I believe to be actually one of the most central practices in the Christian faith. But it's a practice that we oftentimes have overlooked. We don't see it as a spiritual practice. And it's the practice of hospitality. That aside from being in the Word, in prayer, in uh, gathering for corporate worship like this... The practice of hospitality is probably one of the most commanded practices that you'll find in the entire Bible. Are you practicing hospitality, Christian? Are you practicing it in such a way? Because the question is this, how do you become a person of generous hospitality in a world of anxious hostility? How does that happen? And I want to suggest to you, unless you're practicing generous hospitality. You can never become a person of generous hospitality. You'll be shaped by the forces of anxious hostility that marks our culture today. So we'll be looking at Psalm 23. I want us to first consider the pastures and the abundance of God. Then we'll look at the valley and the faithfulness of God. And then finally we'll look at the table and the welcome of God. And we'll look at each of those themes throughout this psalm and ask, what does this mean for us as far as practicing hospitality to our neighbors? So first, let's consider the pastures and the abundance of God. Let me read verses 1 through 3 to you because imagery here is so rich. Psalm 23 is probably one of the most famous psalms, maybe the most famous passage in the Bible. But here's what verses 1 through 3 say. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Let me read verse 1 to you again because it's probably so familiar that we just kind of blow by it. But listen to what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That is an incredible claim to make. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Or other translations might say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When God is my shepherd, there is nothing that I lack. That is an astounding claim to make. What would need to be true in your life today for you to be able to say, I now want nothing more? What would need to be in your, true in your life today for you to be able to say, I now lack nothing? You see, I wonder in our culture today if one of the most important spiritual questions that we're asking is, is this, is a life without lack even possible? What would it take for you to say those words, I lack nothing? What would your life need to look like? How much money would you need to have? Well, the answer is always a little bit more. How big would your apartment need to be? Well, the answer is always just a little bit bigger. What would need to be true? How much success would you need to have? How much fame would you need to have? Who would you need to be madly in love with? What would need to be true for you for you to finally say, now I lack nothing? I want to ask you this. Are you sure? Because isn't the reality that our appetites are ultimately insatiable. Would that number, which is your salary, would that really be enough? Would that square footage really be enough? Would that number of followers and fans really be enough? Wouldn't you find that once you got there, you would find that the appetites that you've been feeding have become insatiable and they've grown over time. And our culture, of course, doesn't help. Modern Western culture is the only culture in all of human history that tells its members that the deepest, that you must find your deepest meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment in this life and you have no other shot at it. It's the only culture that tells its members that if you cannot curate for yourself an amazing, incredible life now, there is no hope for you. Because if the world is all there is, and the world is an indifferent and unfeeling and unseeing, if the world is void of purpose, then it's entirely up to you to build this amazing life today. Are you feeling the anxiety? Do you feel the pressure of that? Do you see how unsustainable that is to be at the core of a culture? But then you add to that deep spiritual undertow, we live in a world where companies are no longer selling us products. They're selling us brands and identities and lifestyles. The promise that we're bombarded with is this promise that says you can consume your way to fulfillment and meaning. You can consume your way to virtue. You can consume your way to justice. You can consume your way to happiness. And then you and I, we don't help either. We're adding to this entire pile of discontent, aren't we? 
every time, and I'm, and I'm an offender here, so this is not coming from a self-righteous place. This is me more pointing fingers at myself. But every time we post on social media and we post a moment of curated display, you know what happens there? We put forth a life where other people compare the worst parts of their life with the absolute best parts of your life, and we say something must be very wrong. And so we live in this world, and it's no wonder that we're more anxious and restless and insecure and exhausted because we live in a world that feeds this appetite, this frenzied search for amazing. And it leads us empty. But here the psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. They're words that run like lightning through our souls. The psalmist is saying, you can know God, you can experience God in such a way that it leads you to a deep contentment, and even more than contentment, a deep sense of abundance. Let me read those verses again to you because the imagery to me has been pivotal in my own walk with God. Where it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And then verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that God's intentions for you, if there is a God, do you believe that God's intentions for you are to take you to green pastures and quiet waters? For most of my Christian walk, I didn't actually believe that. I believe that God's intentions for me were to take me through rocky soil and raging waters because it was good for my soul. Because <laughs> it was good for my character. My kids are probably going to believe that too based on the way that I thought it. But it wasn't until maybe five years ago that I read this again and I said, do I believe that God's intentions for me are green pastures and quiet waters. You see, what I realized was as long as I didn't believe that those were God's intentions for me, I never actually trusted God. I deferred, I submitted, I uh, surrendered, but I've never trusted the intentions of God. But the key to a life of abundance and ultimately key to a life of generous hospitality, a, a life that's pouring over, spilling over into generous hospitality is a foundational belief that behind the universe is not an impersonal, unfeeling force, but behind the universe there is a God whose intentions you can know. And those intentions for you are green pastures, quiet waters. Friends, what would change in your life right now if you could believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the God who runs this universe intends to give you green pastures and quiet waters? What fear would you be released from? What anxiety would get unlocked and be replaced with joy? What self-protectiveness would melt away? 
What fear would become generosity? Do you see the connection that I'm trying to get at? The key, the secret to a life of generous hospitality in a world of anxious hostility, the key to that life of generous hospitality is not more willpower, is not more commitment. The key is knowing and experiencing the God who wants abundance for you. Do you know him like this? What if you could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these were God's intentions for you? You see, until you know God like that, I just don't know how a life of generous hospitality, the kind of life that our neighbors need to see as a sign of hope, I don't know how that gets unlocked. Do you know the pastures and the abundance of God? Let's turn to the second section of the psalm. We look, turn to the second point. Not just the pastures and the abundance of God, but the valley and the faithfulness of God. Let me read verse 4 to you. Because this is where the psalm gets hard, doesn't it? It says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come from me. And you're like, see, aha! You just told me God's intentions are green pastures and quiet waters. I love that idea. And the very first thing God does in this psalm is to take me into a valley of shadows. That's the very first thing that he does. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death. See, as long as life is going great, it's easy to believe that God's intentions are green pastures and still waters. Well, you might be here and you're finding yourself in the valley of shadows. And you're feeling lost and alone. Afraid and uncertain. And you're saying, I wish I could believe that God has those intentions for me. But he is the one who sent me down into this valley. So how in the world am I supposed to trust this God? Now, of course, a psalmist didn't make a mistake here. It's not that he needed an editor saying, hey, you might need a little bit more of a transition between verse 3 and verse 4. The psalmist sets you up to say, here is this God who in the daytime, in the daylight, you knew wanted green pastures for you. And the psalmist is saying, don't doubt at midnight what you knew to be true in the daylight. Don't doubt at midnight what you knew to be true in the daylight. You see, the psalmist here in verse 4 doesn't say, and even if you might walk through the darkest valley, he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, there's a certain inevitability to this kind of crisis of faith moment. And by the way, it's a crisis not just for people of faith, not just for Christians. But you might be here and you're like, I'm kind of a secular person, maybe there's a God, I don't know, I actually don't even think all that much about it. I actually prefer to believe that there isn't a God, and that might be you, but at some point in your life, everything that you believe that made the universe feel like it made sense to you, at some point you're going to walk into the valley of the shadow of death. You can't avoid it. You hear me say this every time I preach. Marvin Gaye was right. Three things you cannot avoid. Taxes, death, and trouble. 
is coming. Taxes, death, and trouble are coming. And you'll hit a crisis of faith. And the psalmist says, even though that moment will come, what do you have? You have the presence of a shepherd who has said, I will be near to you. Here's a key motif that will come across throughout the entire book of Psalms. So we're spending the whole year on it. And you can actually say that the entire book of Psalms is shaped like this. So we're looking at each tree in the forest of Psalms. But if you were to zoom out and take a helicopter up and look at the shape of the entire forest that the trees are made of, if you were to take a helicopter up, there's actually a shape that the entire 150-chapter book of Psalms has. And the shape is roughly this. It starts off in a place of simple orientation. It says things like, God is my shepherd. He wants green pastures for me. It feels almost naive. It feels very optimistic, untested, very simplistic. But then the Psalms takes you from this place of basic orientation, and then it plunges you into a valley of disorientation. And you'll get Psalms that say things like, darkness is my only friend. Psalms that say, my God, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why do, my, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? And so you go from this place of simple orientation and you get plunged into the season of disorientation. And I like the word disorientation because it's not just that it's hard. It's that it's so hard you get lost. You genuinely don't know where you are anymore or what you're supposed to be doing or how you're supposed to be living or even what's, what's, which direction is up and which direction is down. Simple orientation to fundamental disorientation. And then on the other side, we return to a place of enriched reorientation. That the psalm ends with very simple truths. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That it actually turns out that once you've gone through the valley of darkness, once you've gone through the valley of disorientation, that all those simple truths that looked naive at the very beginning actually turn out to be very true. But there's a richness, there's a layering, there's a seasoning. There are wounds and scars and bruises that go along with these hallelujahs. There's a great story of John Newton, who's a great hymn writer, so if you know the song Amazing Grace, John Newton wrote that song. And some of you may know his story. He was a slave trader, became a Christian, and saw that how uh, unbiblical the slave trade was, and he turned from it, and that sort of thing. And, the story goes that at the very end of his life, he's an old, old man. And he says this. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Those are simple statements that anybody can make. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. But when you look at a man who's been through the orientation and the disorientation, he's come out the other side, and the final words on his deathbed, I don't remember a lot. But what I do remember is I'm a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. It's that reorientation that bring, comes back to the simplicity of these statements. And what the psalmist is doing here, he's saying, The Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want you shall not lack. But you're going to go through a valley of shadows. But when you're in that valley, don't doubt at midnight what you knew to be true 
in the daylight. Because here again, here's the thing about a shepherd. In the ancient Near East, nobody wanted to be a shepherd. There's a reason why, if you know the story, King David ends up being a shepherd. Why? Because he was the youngest. It got dumped on him. Nobody in that family wanted to be the shepherd. The reason for that is this. The shepherd has to go where the sheep go, sleep where the sheep sleeps. Probably doesn't eat what the sheep eats, but maybe pretty close. That whether it's rain, rain or shine, winter or summer, day or night, wherever the sheep need to be, the shepherd makes his bed in the midst of his sheep. And what's astounding to me is that when the God of the Bible, the God who made the heavens and the earth, Almighty God, Ancient of Days, when He decides to tell us what He's like, He says, I'm your shepherd. I make my bed right in the middle of your suffering and your darkness. And so the psalmist says, His rod and His staff, they're comforts to me. The rod was used to defend the sheep from predators. The staff was used to nudge, sometimes maybe a little bit more than nudge, the sheep when they're going in the wrong direction. And the psalmist says, I could see the shepherd and his rod and his staff. Why? Because a shepherd makes his bed in the midst of his sheep. And here's the promise of the Bible. The God of the Bible is unlike any other. The God of the Bible doesn't send you into the darkest valley. The God of the Bible goes with you and makes his bed right next to you in the midst of your grief and loneliness and sorrow and suffering. And you say, well, how could I know that's true? How could I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's true? Well, the answer to that is Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't just enter into the valley of your shadows. Jesus doesn't enter with you next to you in the valley of your darkness. What does Jesus do? Jesus enters into the gates of hell and death and the grave itself. Jesus leaves you behind and said, you cannot go with me into this darkness. This is your darkness. This is the punishment for your sin. This is your death. This is your wrath. But if you follow me into this darkness, you will never make it out alive. So wait here. I'll be right back. And he enters into the darkness, not of the shadow of death, but of death itself. He enters into the jaws of death itself. Your death, your punishment. Why? So that he can burst out the other side. So he can make a pasture that is green. So he can offer you waters that are quiet. Jesus paid the price of his own life to keep his promise that he is a shepherd whose intentions for you are green pastures and quiet waters. If you can't believe a God like that, I don't know what it would take for you to know that this God has those intentions for you. The shepherd became silent like a sheep led to the slaughter so that we, the sheep, even in the silence of the shepherd, 
would know that he will never lead us, leave us nor forsake us. Do you see Jesus doing that for you? And if he paid that price, then of course his intentions for you are green pastures and still waters. Friends, don't doubt at midnight what you knew to be true in the daylight. Now, what does all this have to do with hospitality? I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> Aside from the fact that if you know Jesus like this, then your hospitality doesn't just show up on green pasture, still water days. It means you become the kind of person that can offer generous hospitality to others who find themselves in the valley of darkness and shadows. It makes you a kind of person where you have a source of abundance that even suffering and darkness can't take away. You, be kind of the, you become the kind of person that this world needs. And in the midst of the valley of the shadows, a person of radical, inexplicable, inexplicable hospitality in a world where it feels like only the only sane thing to do is to do anxious hostility. Don't you want to become a person like that? Don't you see the hopefulness of a person like that? Have you met your shepherd walking into darkness, into death itself for you? But third and finally, we looked uh, first at the pastures and the abundance of God. Then we looked at the valley and the faithfulness of God. Third and finally, let's look at the table and the welcome of God. I love that this psalm, the entire journey of the psalms, where we started off in green pastures, we went plunged into the darkness of the valley, and on the other side of the valley, I love at the very end of this entire story is that we, that we come back to the table of God in the very house of God. Let me read verses 5 and 6 to you. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And for the Christian, this is where the journey ends. The welcome of God back to his banquet table in the very house of God. Because we know his goodness and his mercy will follow us wherever we go. I love the metaphor of the table because I believe you can tell the entire story of the Bible through the lens of the table. Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve and they're born hungry and he made an entire world made out of food. The whole world was a banquet table for Adam and Eve. Perfect, perfect relationship with God. But Adam and Eve hungered for the one thing that they were not given. And so the aid of the fruit, the food, it's a sin of eating that ultimately breaks fellowship with God. The curse that falls on Adam and Eve and upon the, uh, the serpent is a curse of eating where upon the sweat of their brow they will now receive food from the ground where serpent will eat the dust of the ground for the rest of the days. 
That from there on out, God is preparing to meet his people around the table. Abraham meets God over food. Esau sells his birthright over food. Joseph reconciles with his brother over a dinner. Israel is liberated by God from the bondage to slavery while they're eating the Passover meal. They watch and eat as God does the work of liberation. At Sinai, the, uh, Moses and the elders eat with God right before the law, right after the law is given. That when God wants to set Israel apart for himself, he put him up, set apart Israel for himself, he puts them on a diet. He decides the menu for them. That when God leads Israel throughout the wilderness, he provides manna and quail. He lays out a table, a banquet table, every morning and every evening. The promise that he gives to them is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. That Jesus, his very first miracle is a miracle of beverage. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. The last thing Jesus does before he dies is he sets a table for supper. The first thing that Jesus does when he rises from the grave is he makes a breakfast. That the early church understood that in order to gather together, we must ask for a daily bread. We must break bread daily in the temple courts. That every time we remember the body and blood of Jesus, we're opening up the table of God. That when Jew and Gentile were separated by dietary laws, the Council of Jerusalem comes together. The one thing that we must not break is the table fellowship that once divided Jew from Gentile because Jesus died to make us one. That the entire history, the entire story of God's redemption ends at the wedding supper of the Lamb. It ends with a big party, a big feast, And Jesus says, welcome to my table. I've been waiting for you. Welcome home. See, friends, in the Bible, the place where someone was most likely to meet with God was not on top of a blazing mountain, and it wasn't at a burning bush. The most likely place that someone would meet God was at a dinner table. And what that means is that every single one of us, God has given to us the primary technology of the advance of his kingdom. It's the tables around which we eat. He's given to us the burning bush where most people met God, maybe for the first time. And so I want to urge you, this practice of hospitality for a Christian is not optional. We can never become, we cannot respond in the heat of the moment, in the manner and the mission of Jesus until we practice the hospitality of Jesus so that it forms the muscle memory of our souls. So I want to ask you this as we wrap up here, just to get very, very, very practical. Do you have a very clearly defined practice of hospitality? One thing to maybe consider is this. Most of us probably eat 21 meals a week, three meals a day, seven days a week, maybe a little bit less. I don't eat breakfast, so I'm down to 14, but you know, whatever. Somewhere in there. 21 meals a week. Uh, Can I challenge all of you, Redeemer East Harlem, can I challenge you? Uh, I challenge you to tithe your meals. So that's two meals per week where you're trying to be intentional about using that meal And believing that that meal can become a place of encounter where someone else might meet God 
just by the practice of hospitality. And it doesn't have to be fancy. You don't have to pull out the silverware. You don't have to pull out the cloth napkins. You don't have to do all that. You can. It's great if you do that. You don't have to do all that. It could be as simple as buying a second lunch at work and bringing it back for a coworker and saying, hey, let's, let's have lunch together. It could be as simple as going out, staying a little bit longer at church and going out to happy hour with your, with your coworkers. But to inhabit those places specifically as a practice of divine hospitality. So I want to challenge you, tie to your meals. What day? Put it in your calendar so that by the time you come to Sunday, you can look back and say, oh, I did it. I did it twice this week. Yay. Or I didn't do it. Bummer. That's okay. You're loved. Jesus loves you. Nothing's changed. But I'll try again next week. But can you clearly define And if, if that's too much, that's fine. If that sounds too much, I'd rather have you do something small that you can actually do than try to do something big that you can't. Just pick one dinner a month then. Third Thursdays. Starts, it's alliterated. Super easy to remember. Third Thursdays. Have that be the evening where you say, I'm going to have dinner. If, you, if your apartment's big enough, invite people over. If not, find a way to have dinner. But third Thursdays, can that become a practice, a rhythm, to become a person of generous hospitality? And so I want to challenge you. Over lunch today, whoever you go out to lunch with, maybe it's friends, roommates, new people, whoever you go out to lunch with, talk about the specifics of how you want to practice hospitality. Because friends, look, if the entire story of God's salvation and forgiveness can be told at whatever table you find yourself sitting at at lunch today, doesn't it make sense for us to be intentional about who we invite around the table so they might meet this God, this God who is our shepherd, this God whose intentions for us are green pastures and quiet waters, this God who promises to walk with us in the valley of shadows, the God who will eventually welcome us at his table. Doesn't it make sense to offer that hospitality to the people that God has sent to in our lives? So friends, let's begin, let's practice hospitality in the name of Jesus. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, we're about to receive your hospitality, even right now, as we prepare to take the supper, Lord's Supper. And as we look at the bread that's broken and the cup that has been poured out, we remember that this hospitality wasn't just an overflow of wealth, that this hospitality was costly, uh, that it cost you something, that it cut into your very life. And Lord, as we prepare to receive this hospitality, Lord, I just want to pray, Lord God, that Redeemer East Harlem, that we'd be known as a people known for our generous hospitality. That in the heat of the moment, when the pressure's on, when it feels like we're in the dark valley, that in those moments we will have practiced hospitality enough that it's gotten into the muscle memory of our soul. So we can become the kind of people that even in the midst of our grief and our woundedness, our limping and our bruises, we can nevertheless help others along. And so Lord, would you help us to just get started somewhere? And that by practicing hospitality, we might be surprised to learn 
that we too needed to meet with you again. That we weren't always the host. It actually turned out that we were the guests too. And we came and met with you. And so we pray that you do that for us now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.